In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our children are growing up in a culture that can easily put them on a path of misery. As a parent, what is important to you? Your personal values should guide you in life and parenting. Define your values, live by them, and build a strong, independent child. On today's podcast, we discuss the importance of value-based parenting. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast, Dr. Roger McFillin. Interesting story, fellas. So I'm up this morning. And as I do, I, th- I think uh, you know, early morning meditation is an antidepressant. It really sets... You started this off with a very depressed tone, though. Yeah. Your intro was... You okay. sound... Yeah. Um, you better. Come on, pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I do. I, I go outside, and it's, uh, it was a nice sunny morning. And I'm meditating, and I've been meditating on wisdom uh, recently, just kind of asking the universe for wisdom, kind of more of a spiritual guy, um, trying to connect and kind of get out of my head and just kind of just that prayer, that meditative state for, for wisdom. And I finished with my meditation, and uh, I just checked my phone real quick, and we get a, a, a Google message from... Uh, from Google. <laughs> I was going to say, Mr. Mr. Google? Mr. Google. <laughs> Mr. Google. They, and it's a, it's a review. And you don't get a lot of reviews uh, in mental health, right? Like we're not- You mean like, on the practice? On the practice, okay. yeah. yeah. We're not like uh, Roger Shake Shack and, you know, you, know, you, you put mm-hmm. in a five-star review for, you know, that, that, that's an incredible cheesesteak, you know, at, at Roger Shake Shack. Roger Shake Shack. <laughs> great idea. Business idea. Let's put that down. <laughs> so, you know, we, we serve, I don't know, you know, over 300 clients a week for yeah. a decade. And I don't know, you have like 20 Google reviews. So the people who tend to put on Google reviews, either you never met them and uh, like they couldn't get into our practice. Or, or they're angry and frustrated about something. Or something that they're, they're yeah. upset about. Yeah. And so this person who never heard of, um, never met, puts this pretty extended long uh, Google review in uh, about me, um, pointing everybody to my Twitter account uh, and how like I'm a scam artist and they wasted money. Oh, I thought me. it was going to be a good one. But it's bad. It's yeah. a bad no. one. No. Like, <laughs> look who this guy is talking about psychiatric drugs. And, mm. you know, I immediately like had this like feeling in my stomach, like, geez, somebody like, who I never met, never been a, a patient at our practice or patient of mine has the ability to write out this lengthy review about something that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I went back to the meditation that I had, which was for wisdom. Mm. And I immediately just first felt like a, a feeling like of emptiness or sadness for the person who would put that out there. And I decided to, you know, write a response and, you don't usually write responses on, on Google if someone's putting on a, you know, a one-star review from Kate Smith who like couldn't get their daughter into our practice in a timely manner because mm-hmm. we have a waiting list. But this one I, I did, and you know, I I did. I referred everybody to my 
Twitter or to our, our podcast and how this is an ethical imperative on our end to talk about the risks of psychiatric drugs. Obviously, there might be some situations where a psychiatric drug can be an effective short-term response for some person, but we're out of practice who wants to wants to share uh, the information that we're learning now over decades and, and, and be able to provide true informed consent. But though some of the language that the individual used on, on the, the review was, you know, if you need drugs to take care of your mental illness, and it immediately took me back to what, we're, what we've been dealing with, I think, over the past couple of years, especially for young people. And with young people and the TikTok trends and the YouTube videos are now beginning to identify themselves at a very young age as, as mentally ill. And they're becoming attached to it. They're, pay, they're being attached to it as if it's their, you know, their own personal identity. So even discussing the harms of psychiatric drugs, which is what we do as part of an evidence-based practice, is an assault on that person's personal identity. I think that's what drove that person to put that, that review in. Mm-hmm. Right. And been doing a lot of evaluations and meeting a lot of parents who are exposed to this in our culture. And they're struggling and they're confused and they don't know what to do and how to respond to these situations. Imagine having a 14-year-old who's going to say, if you make me go to school, I'm going to kill myself tonight. And so there's, there's parenting with, with fear. And I needed to be able to have a podcast that talks to this, that speaks to this, about what the parents are going through. You know, we know that this is a relatively new trend where these TikTok videos and the social media um, develops a community around those who are mentally ill. So that every, you know, these teens have normal teenage thoughts, uh, emotions, or struggles, or maybe they feel like they're on the outside of what is popular within their school communities, and mm-hmm. they, feel, um, they feel like they're struggling, and I think it's valid. But now is a new time. They're they're lashing on, latching on to this idea that their their thoughts or their emotions or their experiences are sick, or it's an it's an illness, and the drug is validates that. And I wanted to have a, a podcast today where we begin to talk about how parents can respond to kind of these complex uh, cultural trends and validate that they're parenting on fear but have some some answer to it and i've got two fathers that are sitting in front of me kelly first of all we appreciate you buddy so we are here on a it's a beautiful Did you hear day how he said he pointed to me and appreciated me but not me yeah <laughs> <laughs> well let me finish let me finish the story you know kelly's got um He's got twins and he's got an older son and they're very active and they're all involved with sports. And mm-hmm. I, I just worry that his wife is not going to let him play with us anymore, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a Sunday. It's beautiful out. It is you nice know, out. It's, yeah. a, it's uh, 1.30 we started this. So yeah. he, like, he goes off to a tournament in the morning. Mm-hmm. He finds like a little window in the middle of the day to to come in here record with us then he has to go back and he's got more family things to do and we were gonna give him a reprieve for this weekend and just give him the day off and it was just gonna be you know roger and i in here talking about it which thank god you're here kelly because I felt a little bit of pressure in those text messages <laughs> well that's that's the thing you get this you get a text message from him mm-hmm. he's like hey fellas i could do 130 and you're like oh geez like um 
I don't want to make him feel like he has to come and yeah. do a podcast just because we want to get something out this week. At the same time, I want him to know how important he is and how valued he is. It's not the same podcast without him, Definitely but not. you have to balance that line and you want to, you don't want it to become too much of a burden on his own personal life. You know, but it's not, it, I, I value what we do here. And so it's not a burden. I think it's just a matter of time management and, and, you know, how you, what, what do you prioritize? And obviously my family's first, but I, I really do value what we're doing. So it's a high priority for me. Well, we appreciate you now. So he sends us a text message mm -hmm. on Saturday. He's like, Hey, it all depends on how the tournament goes, Yeah, you know? And I know these <laughs> things too, from, from wrestling and, and with Shane and everything It's like, if, if, if you're, if you win and you keep going, then you got like a later Sunday game or something. Mm -hmm. But if, if you don't, it's like you're the losers have to get up and come in early in the morning <laughs> and have, did they not win a game yesterday? So they won one and lost one. And then they were, were runs against and the team that they lost to played late last night. And then they, they needed one more run against them in order for us to make, you know, to get out of the the morning games. But that didn't happen, so we had to play a morning game. But you got a nice tan going. You can, you know, <laughs> you look like a baseball parent. You know, you get to sit oh, out there staring at the sun for a couple of hours. <laughs> it's very difficult to sit at those games and you know sometimes have beers and just stare at your children playing. It's really a hard job. <laughs> As parents, you guys like sit and have beers. Watching sometimes, the sure. Absolutely. You, you know. I've got a little league field next to my house and I see the parents out there with their uh, the little thermos. The little koozies or yeah. thermoses yes. or the fake straws coming out of exactly. that. Yeah, we got all and the I'm tricks. Like, I know what's going on over there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so, our, that's our form of meditation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wisdom. Liquid so, wisdom. So I decided though to, going back to that, that, that Google review, I wanted to take it and, and learn from it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, obviously, you know, that person I, I never met or worked a day with, but they can come online and they can say that I, you know, that I've, I've worked with them. I mean, we've seen this from other countries, right? Like yeah. on Twitter, people can make comments like they're from like Denmark or something. I worked with Dr. McFillin for this period of time. He's a scam. But I was, I was concerned because what is so threatening about our message or what is so threatening about my Twitter account? So like today I just posted, uh, I, I posted, something that was inspired by you know that person's google review and it's it's around this this idea um so this is what you you posted this on twitter or this is your response on google no i didn't no i didn't i i can talk about my response but um this was what i this tweeted after it. okay yeah very young people are convincing themselves they are mentally ill that what they think how they feel is a sickness there is a social media community, a pharma industry, and a mental and mental health professionals who will easily agree with them, mm -hmm. and that's the reality of the situation. I mean, you guys as parents, if if you're not in my field of work, I wonder if you're a little bit, uh, you know, distance from from this. And maybe you know, Kelly, as a teacher, you're more aware of these trends. So, if a kid is doing really well and has great grades, and say they mess up one time the focus is on, you know, that mess up. And sometimes I think parents can be a little bit too much focused on that. I think there are other times where kids don't really want to play the role of school. They're, they don't fit in um, with that particular system. That's always been the and case. And it's always though. been the case. And so in that case, they may not be doing well. In other words, with grades, right? So, but they're doing extremely well with other things. Like they're courteous. They're, you know, their, mm -hmm. their communication skills are, are off the charts, but they're not being rewarded uh, in, for, for those particular things. 
so I always want to go back to differences in generations, mm-hmm. right? Because there's some things that are just similar about the period of, of uh, adolescence. And one of those things are like the clicks that mm-hmm. are always been there that have been developed. Do you remember what were the clicks, Sean, when we were we in had, high school? Yeah, there's the, the jocks. jocks, the skaters, the, tech, um, the techies, the band, uh, the you know the music band, goths. Uh, well, yeah, the, yeah, the or the, the punk drama. rockers or rockers, drama club, dramas. Um, for I guess during oh, my years, scholastic was, scrimmage, <laughs> scholastic <laughs> scrimmage. I remember that. Yeah, but it's it's always been the same ones. Go Popular back to kids, like the preps, the, the yep. musical Greece. I mean, the, like, it was back in the fifties. Like there was a whole. There's always been groups. Of people. I think it would be cool to bring Greasers back. Actually, it's gonna happen. Yeah. So so it's a it's a period of time of like identity development, right? And you you cluster in groups of people who are who are like you. Well, there, there's a new group that exists here in uh, you know 2022. It's the um you know it's the depressed kids. Or it's the mentally ill group, or that the was, ADHD. That was the group. emo group. Now, now it's like I'm on this many psychiatric drugs. I've been to the hospital this many times. Mm-hmm. I can't go to school because of my mental illness. It's this identification with mental illness, and this is the. These are the parents that are saying, "What? What do we do?" And it tends to be their first situation into mental health treatment which we hadn't seen probably pre-pandemic, but is, is the hospital. We talked about the increased rates of hospitalizations. So I'm meeting with a lot of parents because we're doing some skills training work here. And their child, who has never seen a therapist or counselor been in the mental health system before, their first experience is going to the emergency room and then being hospitalized because that teen says, I want to kill myself. Mm-hmm. Or that teen started to self-injure through cutting. Now, unbeknownst to them, that teen is immersed into this world where they're feeling connected to some people. Maybe it's from another country through a YouTube or they're connecting on the internet and they're self-identifying with similar traits of the people that they're connecting to or the social media that they're following. And they tell their parents, I feel like I'm really depressed. I might need to go to the hospital or I think that um, I'm suicidal. And so the parents, scared, don't know what to do, take them to the hospital. And even if they were seeing therapists previously, because you know we're in a new era, a lot of people seek mental health treatment and, and talk to therapists. The what would be typical normal developmental challenges have now been intensified into this new group of people who are like have this pretty severe mental health, major mental health diagnosis. They go into the hospital. What do you think the first thing that happens there? They medicate them. They're drugged, right? And the parents who are against this approach feel pressured mm-hmm. or even bullied in the fact that this is the. It's the uh, only solution. To not do it would be negligent. Me- it right. would be ignoring medical advice, yeah. right? So they're seeing this psychiatric diagnosis, even though they just met their teen for like 15 minutes, mm-hmm. as if there's some strong validity to it. And the the frontline treatment is going to be a drug. And as if this drug is going to then like help them feel much, much better. And it's usually that's the window into hell. You know, you walk through that window, that initial drug, uh, the teen is identifying with it. Rarely will it have any positive response. I think our science is going to suggest that 
more likely it's going to have a negative response. Even when you go to the drug websites, this has not been approved for uh, children or teens. Yep. Warning, black box warnings. This could increase, increase suicidality. And they talk about there's like a path that happens where the condition worsens and the teen falls more and more into despair. And with each subsequent drug change or increase in the dosage, they begin to lose that, lose their own child. And this might be a shock to some of our listeners. Maybe it's not a shock to, to a lot of people out there. But this is what a lot of us are, are seeing post-pandemic. I'm sure there was a trajectory of it started increasing. You know, a few years before that, we've looked at the statistics. They're, they're increasing. But now parents are in fear. They're afraid to be a parent because they're afraid that they can do something that can push them over the edge. And what is pushing them over the edge? Well, their their child could die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking um, about how do we give advice in these situations? How do we begin to suggest uh, effective ways of reacting or responding. And I immediately started to do some introspection and, and want to just talk about, you know, values. We are in a, I, it's kind of like an expert culture. Um, do you guys know what I mean by that? Like People like, have access to so much information. They can read something and assume they know everything. Yeah. I mean, and I don't throw... That's what I do when I come into this room. I spend a good, you know, two or three hours on a topic and I'm like, all right, I know enough to come in and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't know crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you, uh, when you study for a test five minutes before, you're exactly. going to get 100. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you are, you're a Google expert. I am a Google you know, expert. What the first I'm really three, good at search terms. The, the first three pages of Google, you're going to get some information. Yeah. But this expert culture is that American parents have, you know, lost this sense of, um, of values and confidence and being able to respond to their children because there's so much fear provocation. You can go on social media. You can go on the mainstream news. It's always some fear porn that's going to try to provoke a parent about watch out for this or watch out for that or your kid could be at risk for this. And you have so many people that are just parenting under fear. And so what is the antithesis to parenting of fear? And to me, it's parenting according to your core values. There has to be some principle in place for you to respond to challenging situations. And what I did, and I did this as part of one of the skills training, parent skills training groups that we're running here, is I kind of just reflected back on how do I, how did I raise my kids? I can say that now because I have two adult children. How did I raise them? How did I respond in very difficult times? Yeah, how, did, how did Tracy raise them? <laughs> 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 but that starts at day one. I mean, you're, you're talking about adolescents right now that are going through these periods of, of very common struggle, but now they have access to more drugs than ever before. But it's parenting starts at day one. So what do you, how do you go about, what's the path that you take to prevent that 13 to 18-year-old range from yeah. going down a, a, path, a path that you just talked about with like hospitalization and, and the road to hell. And even if it's not to that extent, mm -hmm. you know, God forbid, you know, hopefully a lot of people don't have to deal with these situations that many parents are, are going through. But even to, you know, optimally respond to challenging situations to your kids, even, even if they aren't experiencing mental health crises, right? So 
I kind of reflected back on how did I make decisions? Um, how did I respond and raise, raise my kids? And I, I put down like eight core values. Um, and, you know, Tracy and I, my wife, Tracy, you know, pretty much, you know, are on the same page with a lot of these things. Not always, because, you know, you're, you're, you're raised differently. And Sean, if I go through a lot of these, these, core, val- these core values, you'll probably, you know, um, agree with many of them because I think, you know, maybe we were exposed to them or raised in a certain way. It begins to shape you. But I also think with, with experience and growth and as you get older and you, and, and you learn more and you're, you're exposed to new ideas and, and new people, they begin to solidify or be shaped in different ways. So I thought a great podcast today is that I would kind of go through one by one these core parenting values mm-hmm. and get your your thoughts on it. And then also maybe just have a discussion today, you two as parents, whether you agree or disagree or maybe some of your own values that are are, are different. And we can identify some of those principles and allow those principles to guide your your reactions to very difficult situations because you're going to deal with them as parents. Now, they might be on a continuum from different levels of challenge or, or um, severity, but you're going to deal with alcohol and drugs and peer pressure and exposure to the internet and sex and aggression or violence or school refusal, or your kids are going to your kids are going to be rejected or they're going to fail or they're going to struggle. All the things that are normal part of living, it's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? You can't protect your kids from it. Okay. Good idea for a podcast today? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so I'm going to just start with the, the first one. Um, I wrote, you have a responsibility to utilize your God-given talents to fulfill your purpose. Your life is meaningful. Okay. That is value number one. Now, let me explain further on what that means. It means to me that, you know, as you're, you're my child. I love you. There's something about your life that has meaning and purpose. That means you've been blessed with certain uh, privileges or opportunities or talents. It is up to you to be able to utilize those talents to the best of your ability. And so for me, that has always shaped this concept of hard work, mm-hmm. that whether it's school or whether it's sports, or whether it's around our home, you have a responsibility to work hard. Now, that's based under the premise that your life is meaningful. So if you're talking about being protective against later mental health conditions and suicide, I tell parents, listen, your kid is not going to end their life because you made them go to school. That's not why somebody ends their life. Now, someone might end their their life because they're in such intense emotional pain and they might not believe their life has any meaning or purpose. That could happen. But if parents, they they can't parent in fear. You have to communicate to your kids that their life is meaningful. And that means doing things that are difficult to achieve that that purpose. There are people that don't find their purpose until they're in their 30s and 40s. It's very common at a, for a young age to feel like you're directionless, right? I mean, think back to Kelly when you were high school, college. Yeah, I, I mean, I would think that my value or my purpose was probably rewarded through um, when I did work hard or got 
you know, good grades or I did something, my parents were always positively reinforcing those specific things. So maybe at the time when I was an adolescent, my, you know, having leading a meaningful life then was contributing to those values. Mm -hmm. And then maybe leading a meaningful life just transitions and changes as you get older. Yeah. You know what I mean? That that just switches. Yeah. With maturity and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And one of the things though, like, and this is this leads into my second one. Only through hard work and commitment can you realize that purpose. So when we talk about what are behaviors you praise and you reinforce, when it comes to school or when it comes to sports or it comes to some other activity your kid would would be involved in, you don't praise outcome. You praise the process to it. So a great example of this is my my daughter, Alexa, if you were listening right now, she's the, you know, she's very artsy and dramatic. She pretty sure she had a math disability. Um, we never got it formally tested, but her mind just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. I think she's brilliant in, in other areas, especially, you know, as an actor or music and music. Mm-hmm. She's creative. I think she's very articulate and she's got great verbal abilities shout out to mikey p for uh, tutoring her there for a bit <laughs> you got the mic posh this is how we can tell that he listens to the podcast exactly you just drop that in there <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway like when it came to math boy it was a struggle an absolute struggle her mind just didn't work that way so she could put in hours and hours you know and then get a c Right. But maybe Madison, my oldest, who is an art, who is a math science person, she's going to be a physical therapist and entering her doctoral program of physical therapy. You know, she could put in like 30 minutes of studying and then, you know, pull a B, but didn't put the work in, you know, and it's the same thing with with sports. Like like when we had Scott Desmond on here for wrestling, he said you could go out there, you could win a wrestling match and get worse or you could wrestle a top kid you know, in the country and wrestle your heart out and lose a a close match and and lose. You can't focus in life on outcome. It's the process. Mm -hmm. And since you're always going to, you know, you're going to fall down, you're going to struggle. If you're going to build this resiliency in life and then to see it as opportunities, then you have to just talk about the process as, as parents and you have to reward the hard work and the effort and be attentive to that, not necessarily the outcome. That doesn't sound that difficult. So why do you think that's difficult for parents to do? In other words, if you see a kid working really hard through the process and let's say they're going out and let's do sports, they're going out, they're doing their own drills, they're doing you know everything. Maybe they're even asking mom and dad to help them out. And every day or every other day, they're working hard. Why? And then they go to a game and then they lose. Or they have a bad game. Why is the focus so much on on that when you should, like you said, it seems easy to say, look, man, you, you're working hard. Keep doing that. Like, that's what I want you to do, right? I think the word that pops into my head is ego. I was just, I was going to say the judgment of others. Fearing the judgment of others. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. like a grade is given to your child and then all those other kids or teachers don't see really maybe the effort that was being put in at home towards studying or the additional time in a batting cage swinging at pitches with a parent trying to get better. And when your child fails, nobody else sees that stuff. They just see what the outcome is. And then for a parent, it's like you get angry at your child for not doing better because you were hoping all that work was going to pay off in this 
momentous, you know, moment of triumph when in reality that doesn't always happen. This isn't a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And, and you know what happens now in, in, in American society is that parents, again, I think it's more fear. It's this idea if your grades aren't really good now, if they're not the best, or you're not excelling in this endeavor, you're going to lose out on further opportunities and you're going to fall further and further behind. And in reality, that's a bunch of crap because I worked in the corporate world and I would take people that had really strong work, work ethics, put in um, time. They're really good collaborating with others and they were excellent employees. And then there were some that had the best grades in the world. They went on and got their masters and they could not function in a corporate environment. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to independently get work done or apply some critical thinking and logic towards stuff. They just knew how to memorize a book and get really good grades. Right. Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers. Remember that book? Yeah. I think we've all read it. And they had yeah. that one chapter about the uh, professional hockey player. Um, the large percentage, the statistical anomaly of hockey players who made it to the NHL were born on a certain day. A month. And it was like born in January, wasn't it? Yeah, it's because they were the oldest so they made the cutoff. So they were the oldest in their... Was it they, January? Was that the... I'm trying to I don't remember the exact yeah, date, yeah. but it was because they had one more year to basically... Mm. Yeah, the, it was about maturity, right? So if you're the oldest on a team, you're going to stand out. Maybe you were physically more mature. But then what happened was, at least in Canada, is they get plucked from their local systems into the kind of that national system and they'd be exposed to the best coaches and the best training. And then, so it was a statistical anomaly that they had an advantage. I think, I think a lot of American families think about stuff like that. Like it's about that advantage mm -hmm. and you're trying to get the advantage. You feel like you're falling behind or the kids might be falling behind if they get this grade in a certain course or they like don't have a great year in sports or fall behind or don't make this team or they're not the lead in the play like parents are just so much more fear-based and involved they don't have the bigger picture the larger perspective and that's why i believe they might be responding that that way yeah i don't disagree with that i i also think social media posts play a big role in the way that parents compare each other so that oh, oh yeah. you know i here's a picture on facebook of our u14 tournament champions look at them you know <laughs> right and then you just sit there and you just lost the tournament over the weekend like what's wrong with my parent what's wrong with me what's wrong with us what are we doing maybe we should get to that team it's like a very huge comparison of people showing outcomes on social media and the outcome may not be as realistic as you think in terms of what many of those kids on the team went through. Maybe they just got lucky that, that weekend and played three inferior teams, right? You, there's a lot of dynamics that people don't want to talk about, intangibles that people can't talk about that I think need to be discussed. But I think social media plays a huge role in the way that parents... Or that push to be identified as gifted, mm. intellectually gifted. Yeah. You know, like it, it's just this, this pull to feel like you're special. Mm -hmm. um, and then to promote it in, in that way. And so when things don't work out, I think it is a hit to the you ego. be careful. I was gifted educator of the year. Remember? I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's because half the school was gifted. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. <laughs> All right, let's go to number three here. Um, life is difficult. You will have to learn how to respond to challenges and adversity. Master this and nothing will stop you. So the reason I put that in there is because, you know, you, you find... You find a, a lot of, you know, in popular culture is when somebody comes up against a, some real adversity or challenge in their life, they don't know how to respond. We are witnessing this in the, in the school systems or witnessing in the mental health field. 
But the truth of the matter is like early exposure to um, like adversity has like this positive uh, post-traumatic growth response, even, you know, unfortunately like traumatic adversity, like the loss of a, like the loss of a parent or somebody important. If the circumstances and the environment is supportive enough, it almost acts as like, um, you know, like a callus on your, on your hand when you start working, it's like protective. And if, if somebody believes that when negative things are happening in their life, that it's something personal to them and it's always going to be that way and nothing will work out for me. I always believe that that was another one of those, um, you know, those variables or factors that in influences poor mental health and attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's kind of getting down on yourself versus the other approach is, yeah, this, this, this is hard. Life is going to, to be hard. You're going to go through this breakup. You're not going to make this team. You might not be doing well here. You might feel like you're on the outskirts socially. Um, or worse, you know, you might have been exposed to something of even, you know, even greater adversity. But it's more about how you're going to respond to it. It's not the event in itself. You're saying that, and I have this vision of our father in my head going like, oh, woe is me, woe is me. <laughs> Anytime that we were young and like complaining about something, it was just like, that was repeated to us. Woe is me, woe is me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And now I think, um, you know, it's just, there's this idea out there that like, you know, anything that's, that, that's really hard or difficult or, or painful, um, you know, it gives you kind of justification for responding maladaptively or, you know, missing school that day for your mental health mm-hmm. or, um, or even worse, like asking for some accommodation or, or using it as a, as a reason to send an email off to uh, the principal of the school because of the way that the, you know, the, the teacher graded that particular, you know, test or that assignment. Uh, it just feels like we're, we're kind of mentally softer. Have the roles flipped because back then, and so what you're saying, my dad did as well. And now the role, the role used to be toughen up, get over it, move on. Things happen. This is going to happen. You have like 10 minutes to be angry at it. Then you have to wake up tomorrow and stop. Right. And then other, other than that, now I feel like the parents, they feel that their role is to protect and keep them as, as far away from those types of challenges as possible. And we talked about this before. I'm going to say it again. Mm-hmm. Lawnmower parenting. Mm-hmm. Cut down all the problems and trim the, all of those weedy problems away so that you never have to deal with them. I believe that's where we're at. And I think the intention was progress. You know, I, I think there, there was positive a, a intention here, if I can kind of pull something from Sean, where it, it's trying to create a, a better environment for children where you're more, you know, adults are more attentive to their emotional experiences and we're trying to kind of protect them from some degree of hardship, mm-hmm. believing that that can have some positive impact on humanity, right? Like we, humanity is better if everyone is more caring and loving and compassionate and treat, treat people well. And so you develop these programs and, and these ideas around kind of maybe building that but boy, it, it just kind of goes off the rails when um, when kids are unable to tolerate yeah. the normal failures and struggles of, of and adversities of, of life. And then you realize as they get older that they're in no way are they prepared to deal with 
a world that's competitive, a world that has expectations and no one's going to save you. No one's going to protect you from it. Here we are where we have major universities surrounding us and we have, uh, you know, I've talked to college professors who say I still get emails from their parents complaining about That's grades. Ridiculous, yeah. You're talking about a 20-year-old. Mm. It's um, just yesterday, uh, my wife um, brought up just in the last three generations, she was comparing the role of fathers in parenting of the children. So go back to my grandfather. He wasn't even allowed to be in the room the day that his children were born. And when the child was born, it was go out and celebrate with your friends, get drunk, and then... Cigars. Yeah. And then you go to work and you're never really around for the children going up. And then the next generation was parents being a little more involved with things like sports and and getting involved uh, in clubs and things like that. And now you have me, my generation, I'm working from home. You know, most of the time I've been there every day of his life. I have a relationship with him. He's going to be turning two this summer. And we have now an opportunity for children to grow up with both the mom and the dad heavily involved in raising them. And it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out because um, I I have a tendency to do things a certain way and she has a tendency to do things her way also. And, um, and, and being in this room and, and hearing these challenges and these struggles, like I, I I'm, I'm always riding that line of wanting to protect him, but then also jumping in and re- and saying, hold on, let him do this on his own. Let him try and do this knowing that he could hurt himself, but he's not going to kill himself. He needs to, he needs to feel that moment of like falling down on his knees or, or stumbling and, and getting hurt safely, if that makes sense? Well, no, I mean, that's, I think that's the most logical thing. It, because if we're raising children to become independent at some point, and for whatever reason, the arbitrary age of 18 is used, but, right? So by that point, they should be able to do pretty much everything on their own as mm-hmm. a young adult. I don't really see that at the high school level, for example, there are still a lot of students who can't function or think for themselves. They're, they're, they're fearful to leave the high school. It's the most exciting time of their lives. And this is the first year I think I've seen people being fearful, not sure what they're going to do, even though they're going to college. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like? You know, I am, I don't know why things have changed, but I thought our role as parents were to love, raise, raise them and love them, but to then get them to the point where they can be independent. You know what this makes me think of this metaphor of teaching a kid how to surf. Oh, that's a good one. This is, I, when I moved out to California, I wanted to learn how to surf. And that's actually how I met my wife. She taught me how to surf. She was surfing. We were working together and I was like, All right, I'm going to, I'm going to cling on to her and I'm going to take advantage of her opportunity. Her, her, take, a, take advantage of her. Choose your words, choose your words <laughs> yeah, carefully no. in this story. <laughs> I, no, when you know somebody who surfs, then it's your immediate in to uh, a group of people that you can socialize with, be in the water with, because surfing is fun when you're in a group. Okay. Um, so I wanted to, to learn how, and I realized that there's two camps to surfing when you're learning how to surf. And in, um, in kind of that South Bay area of California, everybody gets their wetsuit, they get their surfboard, they have a leash, and they're learning how to 
um, sit on the board to paddle, arch your back. But everybody has a leash on and it becomes chaos at the beach because there's all these people like myself that are learning how to surf and they're trying to catch waves and they crash into one another. Boards go flying. People get board shooting at their forehead and sometimes there's bloody noses and things like that. It's a little ridiculous. And then you go down towards um, the bigger surf communities towards like San Diego where the waves are uh, much longer and you can have a, a more mellow uh, long ride and they have longer boards. The parents teach their kids how to surf without a leash. And the reason why is because they want their kids to have more control over the surfboard. And it's not just about catching the wave and riding it and then bailing out. You need to learn how to control it. So a lot of the parents, especially the old school ones, would no leash. And the kids, they would go out for the first couple weekends and then they wouldn't control their board. And then the wave takes their board away from them. And then they have to swim basically like 50 to 60 yards back into shore to grab the board. And then you have to paddle all the way back out again. Whereas in the South Bay, Los Angeles area where it's beach breaks, you fall off your wave and let your board go flying. Then you just grab your leash and pull it right back. So it's almost like parenting, right? There's two styles. Do you want to have a leash around your kid and just keep pulling them back? Mm. Or you want to let them go, let them have their struggles and then learn how to surf. And there's the people that would see these kids out there without a leash and they'd start yelling at them like, where's your leash? You're putting the rest of us at, in, at, at risk. You're going to have your board. It's going to fly in my forehead. But those kids were great surfers. They had control over the board. They never let it go. Right. It's just a, kind of an interesting metaphor about parenting. Um, and, I, and, that, and that's where I'm at right now with, with my son is like, how much of a leash do I let out? Or have no leash at all. I, I'm, I'm kind of a guy where I need to have some leash. So the majority, <laughs> majority of parents are probably the the leash parents, right? And so, well, it depends on how tight that leash is. Yeah. So here's my metaphor. I say like when you're raising a teenager, it's like um, learning how to walk a dog, right? You want to have the dog have enough room on on the leash to be able to kind of explore, learn how to walk, go into the grass, go to the bathroom. But if they dart into traffic, you got to pull that back. Yeah, yeah. So as parents, you have to be able to pull that leash back on, on your own kids when they're about to do something that's dangerous or harmful. Because, you know what, as I'd say my kids, all teenagers are brain dead. Well, actually, this might be inappropriate. I, I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go today. So I queued up a, a, um, a video. It's actually a, a Dennis Prager thing that I thought of just today when I came, um, right before I came in here. And, and I'll... I'll tell the story, what made me think of it. Um, it's a long video, but I'm only going to play about a minute and 15 seconds of it. Okay. And, um, and then I'll, I'll share the story. Have to undertake major efforts to make children into good adults. Okay, then, are people basically good? As I will show, given humanity's history, the answer should be obvious. Of course, human nature isn't basically good. Now, this doesn't mean that people are basically bad. We are born with real potential to do good, but we are not basically good. Take babies. Babies are lovable and innocent, but they're not good. They're entirely self-centered, as they have to be in order to survive. I want mommy. I want milk. I want to be held. I want to be comforted. And if you do not do all these things immediately, I will ruin your life. That's not goodness. That's narcissism. <laughs> we are born narcissists. 
preoccupied with number one, ourselves. And if you've ever worked with kids, you know how cruel, how bullying they can be. And don't parents have to tell their child tens of thousands of times, say thank you? Now, why is that? If we're naturally good, wouldn't feeling and expressing gratitude come naturally? And then there is the history. So I'll stop it there. And here's what made me think of that. I was sitting down to eat. My child was having his lunch and he's eating his food, but he's learned how to manipulate. And he came over to me. He saw I was eating something and he wanted what I was eating. And he comes over, he goes, hug, 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 because he knows I'll pick him up. And if I pick him up, he'll grab the food that he wants and then he'll go off my lap and walk away. <laughs> so, and I, I kind of, I, I remember watching that video because Roger called me out in this room and said, this is, this is your, um, your weakness, Sean, is you think there's good in everybody, but not everybody's good. Like there's, and, and I kept on saying like, yeah, I think people are inherently born good. And then I stumbled upon that video like months ago and then this popped into my head. Yeah, so, I, I don't think. I think it's just a bad example with what, what he's, ta he's talking about children and being narcissism. I think what he really meant was throughout the course of history, we see evil. Well, evil exists. Yeah, but you're, um, a child is born caring about only themselves. They have to learn how you, you need, as parents, you need to. Uh, values. You need to instill those values in there. Um, the respect for others, the, the gratitude. You can have the independence. You can have the curiosity. You can put all those things into your child, but you have to foster it. Because if you just let your child out on their own, they're going to continue to be. A narcissist. They're going to be spoiled and they're going to care only about themselves. And how often do parents, even through teenage years, still treat them like they're an infant? In other words, they give them whatever they want, so, whenever they want, as soon as something's wrong. And I think that is that, that could be a potential problem in our society. Sure. Yeah. I think you do have to learn that um, the world does not revolve around you. Yeah. And that's really important. And if, if um, you know, if parents are constantly risk rescuing kids from natural consequences, mm -hmm. and natural consequences are so important, right? I mean, that's the learning to surf. If, uh, you know, if, if you lose your board because you don't have a leash attached to you, mm -hmm. you're going to be really, really focused on controlling that board. Yeah. Um, but what happens when the teenager is able to make some pretty big mistakes, treat people really bad, struggle really in school, and someone is always rescuing them from that natural consequence? We're depriving them of the ability to learn. And exposing your kids to natural consequences are really, really important. I think that takes me into, into number four. And you can see the, there is, we had this previous podcast was on stoicism and how much those those values have really shaped me. But life is not fair. Do not expect life to be fair. You cannot control what happens to you, only how do you respond, right? And so don't go into this world expecting that everything is going to be fair for you in the way that you want it to, right? Fairness is only a concept that we create in our minds. In a in the ultimate um, utopian society, there is a fairness of opportunity, right? That we would all have equal opportunity to achieve the life that we desire based on our hard work and our talents. But the truth of the matter is that doesn't exist. You're born into a family. You're born into a situation. 
and based on where you're born and you have no control over that could determine the type of opportunities that exist in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that's so important for our, our kids to, to learn is that since life isn't fair, then you do not have to focus any of your attention on the fact that you were treated unfairly. You can focus your attention only on how you're going to respond to the situation. You don't like it? You don't like how the situation turned out? Well, what can you do about it? How can you make it better for you? See, these are principles in my mind where you, where it guides how you're going to react to kids in difficult situations. Younger parents are now being taught, you know, with the, with the equity-based educational, you know, and all that, and they are being taught. I don't even know what that means. Well, fair. Um, so for example, let's go with you. Well, let's go with you sports, even grades at a younger level. Let's go with you. Sports is easier. Um, they don't keep score anymore, you know, at a younger age. Okay. So you know where I'm going with this basically is, um, that's fair. And to be fair for everyone, we're not going to, we're not going to have an outcome to be fair for everyone. And now in education, um, you, you don't, you don't really get grades. I think they're like numbers, you know, or they're S's. They're, they're, they're a bit different. So for younger, and like elementary yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that changed, but that wasn't the same when I was in elementary. Um, so this fairness doctrine is mm-hmm. happening in, at a very young age. I, so I, young feel like parents, that has, I feel like that has, that's political ideology. It could be. Right? Like if you think about how some people politically view how the world should be, is whether one achieves something in life has nothing to do with inherent talent or hard work. It only has to do with opportunity, which that's more socialistic, communistic ideology ideas and um then that is that's what's kind of crept into into the educational ideology right which has then crept into the young parenting ideology so that young parents now believe you know fairness is is all well it's like how how someone can say that math is inherently racist yeah right is is that you can take you can take a look at um who does well in in math and you can compare like ethnic groups or, you know, racial communities or socioeconomic. And if someone's doing, if you're someone's doing well and, and perform, you know, is more likely to become an engineer or in math, then you can just say, well, there's an inequity there. Correct. Other than understanding the process about what would lead somebody in those families to be math proficient. Uh, Because you can look at different cultures and, and different family environments you know, Sean, Sean and I grew up in sports environments and like these extracurriculars were really important. So we kind of raised our kids in a similar way. I know Kelly, you're doing it as well, along with doing well in math, uh, in school, but you'll see other cultures and communities like from, you know, since you're like four or five years old, you're playing an instrument and you're doing math tutoring, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what do you believe is going to lead to having success in life? Yeah. I personally learned a lot from athletics and sports. I'm Those are to, your values. They're my values, yeah. right? It's how you, you learn how to work hard, be part of a, a group, a team, you know, follow kind of rules or instructions. There's something, uh, talking about natural consequences. You're, at a, you're a baseball player, Kelly, and your kid goes up there, he strikes out three times, right? You know, that's a natural consequence you have to, you have to face. So mm-hmm. these things are, these are important. They're lifelong lessons and they're, they're part of your culture. But that influences, you know, the, who you are going to be as an adult, how you shape that. It's not like we're, on, we're randomly 
you know, left to whoever gives us the gives us a break, whether we can become successful in this world. There's a lot of there's a lot of attributes that we have to learn, and there's a, there's a lot of things that we have to learn in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. Hard work being one of them. Yep, I, I think um, what you said made me think of my wife's side of the family, and the most important things for them are education and music. So, her she told the story about her grandmother that whenever a her children or grandchildren graduated from a university level, their picture would go up on the wall. Getting your diploma in high school is like nothing. Don't, don't, everybody, it's expected, you know, you, you must graduate from high school. But if you really want to be up on grandma's wall, you need to keep studying and go on and, and maybe even get your, your doctorate in something because that's when you really attain a certain status in, in her eyes. Education was always important because that's what progresses their family from being an immigrant, um, in from China to Thailand and Upward then from mobility. Thailand, that's all, it's about progress. Right. And mm-hmm. I think back to my wife's father who came to this country and was living off $200 a month. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of that to me shows such, um, resilience to, to overcome and, and to work hard and to sacrifice and to struggle. Well, it's extreme. It's discipline. It is true. But is the risk taking, right? You're, you bet on yourself. He, to, that's exactly what he did. He came to this country first to establish a place to stay. And then the rest of the family came over. And I mean, my wife graduated college. It took her eight years because she worked and paid her way through um, working as a waitress, basically. It's amazing the number of stories um, that, that relate to what we're talking about here today of those that go on to great success, either financially or just fulfillment. And most of them came from adverse backgrounds mm-hmm, where yeah. they had to yeah. you know, struggle um, so, yeah. Yeah, it actually makes me think that that if you are born into, you know, with a silver spoon in your mouth and you, your family has already achieved that, I don't know if that's a better life. I, mean, I think it's, I don't, I, I think uh, statistics or some type of data analysis which would show that people who come from that environment are probably m- miserable to an extent because they have no purpose. Exactly. Like there's something about driving yourself to be able to have the life that you want or the freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the, I think we, we live for our kids in a lot of ways, like being able to provide them opportunities that they, we haven't had, like that, that serves us, you know, every day to work hard and do different things. And you almost rob that generation of that. And listen, the purpose of life isn't materialistic kind of good, anything that's material related mm-hmm. because, um, you know, in though in that respect, we'd see people who who uh, win the lottery would have higher ratings of quality <laughs> of life. But God, I don't know if you've seen some of these studies. Like, there's a large percentage of people who just go broke. Yeah, it's almost like they give it away. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't earn it, there's something about it. You know, and then I think the people who are, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are really, really wealthy. You'd never know it. That's uh, why I love the story about Warren Buffett because his children had no idea who he was and what he was doing and Lived how in like much a ranch. Yeah. He, Cause he's just, he's a humble, hardworking person who loves what he does. And he's generated just enormous wealth. And he saw the harm that it has done to other generations um, that became rich. And he refused to, you know, really provide that or just pass it over to his kids. I think he gave him X amount of dollars because he's like, this is all you'll need. His wife makes him budget every morning for breakfast still. I saw that <laughs> yeah. little clip on him. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Now I'll go on to the next one. Um, 
Treat others with respect and dignity. Be strong and stand up for those who require your assistance. Help others be kind. Yep. Kind of a universal kind of life principle, mm-hmm. right? And again, I, I, I do believe there's somewhat of like this karmic um, influence that, that exists. Like if, if, you, if you treat other people with dignity um, and respect, then you're more likely to get that back to you in, in your life. It's kind of like the, this paying it forward. I think human, human beings at the very least just deserve some dignity and respect unless, you know, obviously, you know, they're, they're not treating others with the same dignity or respect. And then you have a responsibility to stand up for those who are struggling. Mm-hmm. I have a great story. When we went out to eat like last year and we don't take devices out to dinner as best as we can because we bring books and usually during the week, they have to read a certain amount of page, like um, a half hour or an hour every day to earn the time. Then we call it free for all Friday because then they obviously would want to play some games, but they have to earn it. So when we go out to dinner, it's just us. Sometimes they'll bring books or they'll bring like Clue or they'll bring like other games. Um, and this waitress was serving us and we make sure that the kids always say, thank you, please, just common stuff they don't to remind them and sometimes i'll forget and then my youngest will remind me like you didn't say you didn't say please dad like all right (laughs) but she comes back up to the table afterwards and she's like you know that's really refreshing and just these kids are awesome thank you and i'm like why i'm like really We, we don't always see that at home but thank you but she goes no it was just it's nice to be told you know thank you and please even though repeating it, especially by younger individuals, I actually feel like that's going away mm-hmm. a lot more. The simple respect and courtesy that you can teach your children. And it's not hard. It's just a reminder. And, you know, why not do that? Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you want your children to be respectful in any it's situation? So yeah. So uh, I think that is absolutely necessary. Here's what's difficult though. So, and, and I added this onto the, the value. It is be strong and stand up for those who require your assistance. Help others. Be kind. So it's like when you're growing up in school, what if somebody is being bullied? What if someone in your friend group is kind of being neglected? Are you going to be a bystander and you're just going to let that happen? Or are you going to be? Are you going to? You going to be a leader, and you're going to stand up. It kind of begins to shape a little bit about who you are going to be as a person, and what are you going to stand for. This life is limited. We only have so much time on this on this planet, and so these little opportunities that come up, you're going to be faced with a moral crossroads. And are, is fear going to drive you? afraid of standing out and um, having somebody put you down for it are are you going to be are you going to be in a position where you're going to stand up for what you believe in because life is going to require that of you because fear will stop you from living the life that you're meant to live and how you respond to that emotion is really really critical being courageous is a higher energy level than fear. Fear is a lower energy level. It's it's in, it's intrinsic. We all experience it. It's very primitive. It's a necessary emotion. But if you're really going to make progress in your life as a person and you're going to evolve, 
you have to conquer that feeling in an effort to be able to respond in a value-based way. And as parents, you have to do the same thing. If you let fear run your life and it determines how you respond to your kids when they're struggling, you're going to have a fear-based kid. Mm -hmm. So the next one, you guys know who Jim Harbaugh is, right? Yep. Yeah. At the time, I think he was the head football coach at, uh, for the San Francisco 49ers. Now he's the head fo football coach at University of Michigan. And I heard him telling a story. It might have been about his own father where, uh, or somebody in his life said, approach this day with a passion and enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Mm. And I loved it. So my kids were young when I heard this. And I would drive them into their elementary school every day. And when I would drop them off, I would say, approach this day <laughs> with a passion and enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Say it every single day. Now, that was just, I think for the most part, that was uh, my two youngest because my other one was a little bit older. She might have been in like high school. So my number six um, core value was approach this day with passion and enthusiasm. Embrace this day regardless of how you feel. Each day is a gift. And that's where our parents are struggling with their teenagers. It's because the emotion that the teenager's experience runs the show. Yeah, and it affects the entire family, right? Because they're walking on pins and needles. Because yeah. they're afraid. Yeah. I And I... I, I say this to my kids and it's not, this is from a psychologist standpoint, right? This is going to come off as a bit cruel, but it's not meant to be. And when I explain myself, you'll better understand what I mean. I'll say the world doesn't care how you feel. And that's usually when they're complaining about something or they're not in the mood to do this or not in the world does not care how you feel. This is true. The world does not care. We do care about how you act how you respond. It is not a justification to treat somebody poorly. It is not a justification to not do the work that's needed. It's not a justification to take a break from your responsibilities. It's not a justification to take the easy way. The world doesn't care how you feel. Now, I don't approach my clients like that because that's my, my job in that situation is understanding how they feel. I care very much how they feel. But the lesson to my kids is each day is a gift. Even if you feel horrible, do the things that are necessary that you're responsible for and that are tied to the life you want to have, right? So we don't skip school or skip practice or don't do our chores or because of how you feel, it's no reason to talk to your mother or your father or your sister in a certain way. And I think that is powerful because right now we are working with a generation of young people who don't know how to manage their emotions. They run the show. When they feel depressed, they can't get out of bed. When they feel anxious, they avoid situations. And learning to master that feeling is absolutely important. What do you think about, I agree wholeheartedly, in, but when they're adolescents, and let's say they are running the show, is there a capability of a parent listening to this podcast right now saying, I really want to make that change? Can that occur when, you know, a kid is an adolescent? Can a parent change their way of thinking and then say those things and say, you know, listen. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's much harder the older they get. There's no doubt about that, Kelly. Like when, if you've raised your home in a certain way 
And even if you model it, it gets it much more difficult when, you know, your kid says, I'm too depressed to go to school today. And now you're saying, hey, it sucks. I know you don't feel great, but your life is important and you're going to school and you're going to deal with this, right? Because you haven't necessarily kind of lived that. And if, if the, their emotions are out of control and they're yelling or screaming, they handle emotions in a really ineffective way and it's allowed in your home and you're even scared of your own kids, it makes it you know that much more difficult. But I believe, yeah, everyone can learn. Mm-hmm. Next one? Yep. Uh, I got two more here. So we got seven and eight. Don't lie. Your words matter. Follow through on commitments. Be trustworthy and accountable. I mean, again, more, I think, simple life principles. You know, your, your honesty and your word matters. And if you're not accountable and people can't trust you, then you're not going to be somebody that people are going to look towards in moments. You're not going to be the, the person that um, you're going to turn to when somebody needs you. Uh, it's going to affect your relationships. It's going to be very difficult to have strong friendships, um, strong romantic relationships. And when we talk about just, you know, going to school and going into the, into the workforce, I mean, you want honest, trustworthy people, people you can count on. And that's things like if you decide what you're going to punish as a parent, you know, one of the things you have to be able to follow through on is, is, is lying. Lying is just not something that's allowed in your home. Yeah, when you lie, your life is miserable because you're so hard to keep track of your your stories, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you want to make your life easier, just be honest. Always tell the truth. And it's so easy to recall what happened because you've always told the truth. So you're just like, okay, this is what happened on that. So I'm just going to say exactly that. And you know what? That's exactly what you said last time. Yeah, because it's the truth. <laughs> and, and you know why people lie the most? It's usually out of shame. You know, it's like when they've fallen short or did something wrong or they're hiding something or mm-hmm. keeping something. And then lying just creates more shame, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like building shame upon shame. It's a horrible way to live. Hey. And since we're all human beings and we're all going to, you know, fuck up and make mistakes right. and we're not perfect, we're fallible. You know, you admit that other people feel safer around you. Mm-hmm. I, I, my father-in-law, he's got some good wisdom and uh, he used to say, you know, lies don't age well. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. And the final one, apologize when you make a mistake mm. and learn from them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when why, I make, why, why, when why? I make a mistake, I will apologize. It hasn't happened yet, but when it, <laughs> when it does happen. So why is apologizing so difficult for people to, to do? Which, it's admitting you're wrong. Why? That shouldn't be that difficult to do. Like yeah. we should be embracing the fact that, listen, I was wrong. Well, there's the shame and there's the ego, right? Um you know, this goes back to our earlier conversation today about why do parents respond on about the outcome, right? If you kind of grow up and thinking that you know, there's this perfectionistic standard for so many things and you're not attentive to the process the out, that leads to the positive outcome, like failing, making mistakes, falling short, where you get stronger and you get stronger, well, every time something doesn't go your way, you feel deep shame about it. Like it's not supposed to happen. You lie. And you hurt somebody's feelings. You're not even strong emotionally enough to be able to, to say you're sorry because you, you cannot even admit that you're wrong. I mean, these are, this, is what we're, this is what we're seeing when you know, 
parents are fighting grades in college. It's the intolerance for those, those mistakes for not being good enough. And boy, like how about a conversation today ends on the fact that let's build tolerance for being human, right? We're, we're losing connection with being human. And it goes back to a teenager identifying themselves as mentally ill, right? Because that's some justification for their own beliefs that what they feel or how they live is so uh, different from what is the norm. You know, that's a window into their soul. It's a window into the idea of how they view what they're experiencing. And that's a shame and that's abuse in my opinion because you can easily uh, reinforce that for a young person by telling them their experience, invalidate their experience, invalidate their their emotions, the way they think about their life. And instead of using it as an opportunity to learn, and instead of supporting it and saying, hey, there's a process here in order for you to live the life you want to live, you immediately begin to label it and drug it. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.